All right. Shall we begin this morning by standing and let's say our prayer together. Almighty God, the fountain of all wisdom, enlightened by thy Holy Spirit, those who teach and those who learn, they're rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth. They may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the same spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Again, we have our list of folks being confirmed, it looks like. We have uh, four folks from St. John's, and we're very excited about that. So four people, and um, looking forward to that happening in uh, two weeks from today, when the bishop will be here with us, confirmation Sunday will take place on April the 24th. Of course, we're gonna, our class is going to take two Sundays off, next Sunday for Easter Sunday, the following Sunday for Confirmation Sunday, and come back together on May the 1st. That, of course, means that uh, the following Saturday is our retreat. So when we get together on Sunday, May the 1st, we will talk more about the retreat at that time and give you some more details. Uh, you have there in your folder on your class schedule, you have there sort of our uh, agenda for our retreat time, and uh, we'll be uh, talking more about that on May the 1st. So, but very excited to have four folks being confirmed from St. John's. We might have a, a person from an outside church also join us. I'm supposed to hear a word for today about that, so it could be up to five. So, yes, it should be a wonderful, wonderful Sunday. So, again, those that are taking this class for information purposes, please be with us at the 1030 service. Encourage those being confirmed, and, uh, of course, the reception afterwards, a big party uh, for, for confirmation. So, definitely looking forward to that. Uh, today, Palm Sunday, we have our palm branches. I went to the 7.30 service, so I already have mine. It's blessed and ready to go so I can wave mine. Yes, palm branches. For those only going to the 10.30 service, you'll get yours in just a little bit. Katie's got hers. Katie already has hers. Yeah, yeah, Leanna has hers. All right, looking forward to it. So that means that we're going to get out of class at 10.10 uh, 10 today. I have an alarm set, 10.10, 10, so I can get a few things done, some communication, so we can have our time be a fruitful time out there in the courtyard. And that's where we'll start our service this morning, out in the courtyard, blessing those palm branches and waving them around in our procession. So, looking forward to that. Should be a lot of fun. Well, last time we talked about, again, what is the church? That's the big question, the big first question, at least. And we talked about how the church is a community of Christians created to worship sacramentally and a great tradition that's been passed down to us and a faith handed down. We talked last time about the sacraments. This is your classical definition of sacrament. They're outward and visible signs of inward and spiritual grace given by Christ as sure and certain means by which we receive that grace. We broke that definition down a little bit last uh, Sunday. We talked about how it's very, very earthly, sacraments are, inward and spiritual grace, of course, given by Christ. The reason why the two sacraments, Eucharist and baptism, are the principal sacraments is because they're directly given by Christ. Our other sacraments are more implied by Christ and kind of evolve out of Christ's teachings. Uh, but they're all basically given by Christ and the Holy Spirit. And of course, sure, in certain means by which we receive that grace, receiving that inward grace that God gives to us. And of course, we also talked about uh, a definition of grace as well, God's favor towards us that is unearned and undeserved. 
And by it, God forgives our sins, enlightens our minds, stirs our hearts, and strengthens our wills. And I would challenge anyone, I think that is the best definition of grace I've ever heard. I've heard a lot of definitions of grace. That one I think is the best one. Uh, God's favor towards us and uh, for that. We talk also about how it's not just these sacraments that we do in the church. If we talk about the two principal sacraments or the seven sacraments of the church, we, obviously sacramentalism goes beyond even that. That all of creation really is a sign of God's presence. And so all creation can serve as a sacrament to us. And part of our Christian faith is being able to develop the eyesight, to be able to see God's presence in this world, in events, in people, in animals, in all living things. Also in circumstances like suffering, can we see the presence of God in those times? And again, those descriptions, earthly intersection of heaven and earth, and also a whole way of life. And then last time we talked about confirmation a little bit as well, and excited about having confirmation in two weeks. So now we move on to the second big question of the class, which is this one. What is the church's faith? That's the big que- big, uh, second big question of the class. And so I think that begs the question, as we can see there, what exactly is faith? What is faith? It's interesting how that Both of our creeds, whether the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, begin with those words, I believe, or we believe, however you want to parse it. It's the old Latin word credo, I believe, we believe. First two words of the creeds. Before we get there, though, let's talk a little bit about the creeds for just a moment. Since this part of the class here, when we talk about uh, this big question, what is the church's faith, is obviously going to be teaching on the creed. Not today, but in the subsequent Sundays. So let's talk about the creeds for a moment. The Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is the baptismal creed. It is the more ancient creed. It probably evolved in the first generation after the Apostles. It's not written by the Apostles. But it's credited to them because it so represents the faith that they taught. So what happened in this first generation after the apostles is you start having in the church these summaries of faith becoming more and more popular. These summaries of faith turn into creeds, and now you have this principal creed that comes to us from the East. It's very Eastern, and it so represents what the apostles were teaching the church that it is then popularly named the Apostles' Creed. But it comes to us very, very early on. The Nicene Creed is different. The Nicene Creed is an ecumenical creed, and it comes to us in 325 A.D., so 25 years into the 4th century, comes the Nicene Creed. And it was a response to the heresy that had afflicted the church. The chief heresy, of course, really being that Jesus is not God. Jesus was created in some form or fashion by his Father. Now, he is the, he is the pinnacle of all creation, but he is, in fact, still created. And there was a time when Jesus was not. That became the really big saying, though, of these, of these heretics. And so the church comes together in an ecumenical council, the first one in Nicaea in 325. All the bishops come together. And what do they do? They, they discern truth. They pray. They seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit. 
and they discern what is the truth. And what they do is they then write a creed that represents that truth that the church has always taught. So they didn't just like come up with it or created it or invented it. They just represent what the church has always taught. And so we have those two creeds. The Nicene Creed is, for the most part, um, you know, in our Holy Eucharist services that we do eat almost every single Sunday, that's the creed that we say. But if we ever do a baptismal service, if you notice, we always do the Apostles' Creed. We do the Apostles' Creed in the form of the baptismal covenant. Remember those three questions and answers? The people's response is just quoting back the Apostles' Creed. Do you believe in God the Father? I believe in God the Father. God the Father. And then you're basically giving us back the Apostles' Creed. So in baptismal services and confirmation services, you will hear the text of the Apostles' Creed. In confirmation classes, it is most proper to teach through the Apostles' Creed. So that is what we're going to be doing in the next couple of Sundays, is teach through the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed have tremendous overlap. And that's one of the handouts there in your, in your handout, in your uh, folder there, is comparing the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and see how much overlap there truly is. They truly are teaching and professing the same faith. But both those creeds begin, of course, with I believe, or we, or we believe, if you want to do the, uh, more of the uh, communal aspect. So what exactly is faith? What is faith? Well, when we're talking about the creed, and it says I believe or we believe, that seems like we're saying that part of what is faith is belief. And that's exactly right. Faith is belief. And so that begs the question now, well, what is belief? What does it mean to believe something? To believe is to give something over. It is to credit someone's account. So Rowan Williams, who was the former Archbishop of Canterbury, said this in one of his books. He talked about the episode of uh, John chapter 9 when Jesus heals the blind man. And he says, and of course Jesus asks, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man who's just been healed says, I believe. So now Rowan Williams interprets that passage, and this is what he says. He says, uh, now clearly Jesus' existence is not in doubt because he's standing right in front of this man. His I believe is clearly something else. So William goes on to, Williams goes on to explain, uh, explain it. He, he believes he has confidence. That is, he doesn't go off wondering whether the Son of Man is out to further his own ends and deceive him. He trusts Jesus to be working for him, not for any selfish goals. And he believes that what he sees and hears when Jesus is around is in fact the truth. So he believes Jesus' claim when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is not really any different, I don't think, than really, fundamentally, than say like a marriage. To have a marriage that actually works to be faithful in a marriage, to have faith in that marriage, you have to believe in that other person. You have to give yourself over and say, I believe, I have confidence in that person. And why do you have confidence in that person? It's because that person has, in the words and in their actions, have proven themselves to be good, to be out, not just for their own selfish ends, breaking trust, but to be out for my end. And that's when a marriage actually works, when you have that confidence and that faith in each other, when there's faithfulness in that marriage. So in many ways, I would say, 
It really is no different. Because kind of like the cured blind man here is doing is he's in some ways being married to Jesus. He's like, I'm marrying you now, right? I'm entering into a relationship with you because I trust you. You are good. I trust you. I'm entering a relationship with you. So notice a couple of things, though, about that story. There's always evidence. There's evidence. Jesus is the image of the true God. So that is his person. He's there in the flesh in front of this man, and he does the work. So he heals the man. There's also uh, works associated with it. So notice that faith is never, ever, ever without evidence. And I would submit to you, I would submit to you that it actually is somewhat of an evil act to ask somebody to have faith in you when you don't give any evidence. Go back to a marriage. The father, go back to a, to a relationship with, between father and children. The father abuses children all the time. He's a hateful father, a horrible father, and yet he still demands his children to love him. That is an evil act. The father never does anything good but yet still wants more from their kids, have confidence in me, give me something, give me your confidence, give me your love, give me your faith, but I'm never going to be good to you. So, and God, of course, as a heavenly father, as a good father, would never ever ask his children to do that. There's always evidence associated with faith. So there's a popular notion today that somehow science is the thing of evidence. And faith somehow is not without evidence. Well, that is a misnomer, okay? Both science works in evidence, faith works in evidence. Faith, belief, confidence, it always works in evidence, always works on works. And that is why God has chosen to reveal himself to us in the sending of his son. But it is true. Faith doesn't just go on that one level. It also then goes beyond that level. So it's not just merely evidentiary, it goes beyond evidence into something else. It goes to relationship. It goes to relationship. Faith is about more than just a rational assessment of the evidence. It delves deeper into the realm of relationship. And it always works the same in every single relationship. Do I trust this person? Am I willing to make myself vulnerable for this person? If a person thinking about perhaps marrying somebody is thinking about that very question. Do I really want to make myself vulnerable? Jump into a marriage with this person? I'm okay dating them, but do I really want to marry them? That takes it to a whole different level. But that's the way it is with God as well. God is a person. And so it works on relationship. Uh, so this blind man, of course, has the confidence that Jesus is in fact good. As William Williams says, he's working for me. He's working for my good. So faith, I think, is a little bit like, uh, like, like credit. Faith is credit. To believe is to, give your, uh, is to give something over to credit someone else's account. So in some ways, we're the bank. This is the analogy I would bring up. We're kind of like the bank. And God is the one that's asking us for credit. He wants us to make certain... He wants to make certain purchases. But we're going to have to bear the cost. What is the cost? Well, the Bible tells us we are to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is called cost. We're giving our whole selves to God. That's a cost. We give um, alms. We give prayer. We give devotion, time, talent, treasure. 
the basis of stewardship, we give things over to God. But he pro- God promises to pay back those loans in the end. Now, in the end is always very important. Because is in the end mean in this life? No. What God promises to, to do is in the end, meaning not just in this life, but in the life to come. That God will eventually set things correct. As the Bible tells us, great is reward in heaven. Which is why, again, prosperity preaching is in fact not just wrong, but evil. Right? Um, it is in the end. God will make all things right. God will make all things just. Do bad things happen to good people? In this life, absolutely. But in the end, God has promised to make all things right. He's promised to pay back those loans. And one of the main instruments, I would say, just like a bank uses, of course, is credit history. So I remember my first loan. I was, I think, in the 11th grade, and I wanted to buy a computer for $1,500. So I told the bank, down payment of $300, uh, I'm going to take out a $1,200 loan, I'm going to pay back $100 every single month, and the bank said, okay, well, five bucks in addition to that, and I said, fine, that's fine, 105 is fine, 105 a month, and I'll pay this back in a whole year, and I did. Now, of course, it wasn't my credit history that they were evaluating, they were evaluating my father, who had a relationship with the bank, right? <laughs> kind of like baptism a little bit, yeah, it's the faith of the parent, right? Faith of the parent. Um, but the whole point of me doing that, of course, was to build my credit, his, uh, credit history so that I could go to the next one. It was my car, and I was able to get that, and my next car, my next car, my next car, and eventually a house. Because the bank saw me as being worthy, uh, of being faithful, and I will pay back the money. So credit history is always very important to a bank. It's very also very important in many ways to relationships. You've got to see a credit history. It's the same way with God as well. So what is that credit history? I would argue that the credit history is, of course, primarily Holy Scripture. Not just Holy Scripture by itself, but as interpreted within the framework of the creeds. We'll talk here in just a second how the Bible, the Bible here, I actually brought the Bible, so, you know, the the Bible uh, can, of course, mean anything that you want it to mean. It can mean anything that you want it to mean. It can rationalize anything you want it to rationalize, all the way from slavery to pedophilia, abuse. It can, it can rationalize anything you want it, to, uh, anything you want it to, to rationalize. However, it cannot rationalize anything when it's actually used properly within the life of the creeds, read according to the creeds. Then it cannot rationalize anything because then it actually has a framework. There's never scripture by itself It's always in the framework of the creeds, and that's always very important to realize. But Anglicans do believe the Bible is that primary witness to Jesus Christ. It is the primary witness. Jesus Christ is the primary witness to to God and who God is. And who is that? What is that primary witness to Jesus? That is, of course, Holy Scripture. And so the Bible, of course, means that's very important to us. And I'm behind on my PowerPoint slides. So there you can see Jesus healing the blind man. Do you believe in the Son of Man? That whole episode. Oh, what is faith? There you go. There is uh, some really fun animation. To believe is to give something over. To credit someone's account. There is the Bible, an Anglican approach. 
Okay, there we go. Now we're caught up. Overall, though, I would say that being a Christian is not simply to know some facts about Jesus, but it's actually to trust Him. Again, it's a relationship. I trust Jesus because I found other true and trustworthy witnesses to Him. In Holy Scripture, in the lives of Christians around me, in the saints and those around me, and again, above all, in Holy Scripture. So that means that uh, the Bible becomes very important to us as Anglicans and us as Episcopalians. In fact, there's a really uh, great prayer that given, that's been given to us by Thomas Cranmer. Remember, Thomas Cranmer is, of course, the one who wrote the prayer book. But for the most part, what Cranmer was doing was taking a lot of things from the Roman Missal and bringing them over into the prayer book. And then the prayer book gets you know, revised over the course of time. But there are some prayers by Cranmer that's still there. And this is one prayer that's still there. That we pray during ordinary time. So we pray in all those, you know, Sundays after Pentecost. And this is the prayer here. Blessed Lord, who caused all the Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you've given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So in this prayer, you can see what is the theology of Thomas Cramner, but also really an Anglican approach to Holy Scripture. So I want us to kind of dissect this prayer a little bit. So really the question is, what is the character of the Bible? What does this prayer tell us about the character of the Bible? The first thing I would say is, who caused all Holy Scripture to be written? First of all, we would say the Bible is God's book. The Bible's God's book. He's, he caused all Holy Scriptures to be written. So the first and most important thing probably to say about the Bible is that it is what God wants us to hear. It's exactly what God wants us to hear. So when we hear the words of Scripture, we are hearing the Word of God. God is the author of the Bible, and the human agents are secondary to that. They're very, very important. They need to be studied and dissected and all the rest. But we also always need to remember that it really is Almighty God, the Holy Spirit, who is knitting this whole book together, who has knit this whole book together. The idea that God, uh, God did not dictate the Scriptures, but He caused, the word caused there, He caused the Scriptures to be written for our learning. And He did this by inspiring these human authors. So we use this word inspiration an awful lot. It comes from us from 2 Timothy, where Paul writes that all Scripture is inspired by God. And that word inspired literally means that God breathed it out. So if you go back to one of the creation stories, it's the third creation story in Genesis. You have the form of man being sort of constructed, but he has no life. But then God breathes into this form and then it becomes living life. The idea that human nature or human beings are, are formed by the breath of God. And from the breath of God comes life. Same thing with these Holy Scriptures. God breathed into the Holy Scriptures uh, the breath of life as He caused these human agents, these human writers, uh, to write these words. Not dictating them, but inspiring them to write them. So they still come from their own personalities, from their own arguments, from their own 
mindsets, but is in fact exactly what God wants us to hear. So the scriptures are therefore holy. The nature of scripture is that it's in fact holy. Uh, written for our learning. The second one is the Bible is the, is the church's book. It's the church's book. And because it's the church's book, then we must read it in community, which is what we do, of course, in our liturgy. We hear it mostly in the context of worship. So individual reading, while being very important, and in the third part of the class will be encouraging to actually take up a devotional life and to read Holy Scripture individually. But that is always going to be secondary to what we do in community. The Bible's got to be read in community because that helps us to be able to, to interpret it and to be actually to know what it means. But it's also for our learning. So listening to the words of Holy Scripture is how we learn more about God in Christ. We listen to Scripture as we learn God's dealing with the world. And as we listen to the Holy Spirit, we gradually make this story our story. And that's one of the most important things, I think, as we read through Holy Scripture, is we understand that it's not just a story on the page, but it actually becomes our story. The third part there is number three. The, the, the Bible's purpose is to lead us to salvation or to everlasting life. So John chapter 20 says this, that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book. So in other words, there are many more things beyond what's written in the Bible that God is doing in the world. I think we know that. But these things are written. These particular things are written. So you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of, the Son of God. And that believing, you might have life in his name. The primary subject of the Bible is, of course, Jesus Christ. So it's the Savior, Jesus, Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament moves relentlessly forward as it's always anticipating the future action of God, the coming of the Messiah. So the Old Testament always has that context. It's always setting the table for the New Testament, for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring fulfillment of God's salvation. But the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament by giving us Christ in the Gospels. And so again, the Old and New Testament always are seen in light of one another. So one, one writer has put it this way, that uh, Jesus is the truth and that every text of Scripture speaks of Him. And that's true. So when reading the Old Testament, what's very important is to try to find Jesus in the Old Testament. The idea of everlasting life, that the Bible being is, uh, the Bible is sufficient. The idea here, the Bible reliably and adequately bears witness to salvation. So one of the questions that gets brought up every once in a while is, are there errors in the Bible? Are there mistakes in the Bible? And different folks have given, they have different, given different theories on that down throughout, the time, down throughout time. Anglicans, we sit, sort of stay mute on that, on that topic. Um, but what we do say unabashedly, is the Bible is a reliable witness, a reliable witness to, um, to bringing us salvation. There's also things that we believe or we, we practice or not explicitly taught in Holy Scripture. I don't know that the threefold office of bishop, priest, and deacon 
is necessarily lay down in Holy Scripture. It doesn't violate Holy Scripture. I'm not really sure that it's actually laid out that way. But the church has authority uh, to teach, but never to teach anything that is in contradiction to the Bible. So maybe more things that we do, but never in contradiction to the Bible. And it's proven to be the reliable and adequate rule or measurement of all that we believe as Christians. The other thing that this prayer does very, very well, it's kind of fun, is the idea that the Bible requires digestion. It requires digestion. Here, and then as Cranmer wants to gloss that verb here, he gives us other verbs. Read, mark, learn, and digest. So notice all the action verbs that are glossing the verb here. To hear the Scripture witness Jesus, we need to ruminate upon it. As Jesus says all the time, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's not just talking about having, you know, good audible awareness or whatnot. He is, he is talking about something that's spiritual. Can you spiritually hear? And that's what Cranmer is talking about as well. We must chew. We must ingest and ruminate on the words of Scripture in order to discern them and for them to bring us comfort of God's holy word. So the scriptures are a deep well whose depths can only be plumbed through prayerful study. And I think that's very, very true. So the Bible, yeah, one thing you have to be, I think, comfortable with when you're reading the Bible is mystery. You're not going to always understand everything that's there in Holy Scripture. But it challenges us. It's a well that we can never get to the bottom of. As I said before, the scriptures alone, though, can be very dangerous. And they can rationalize basically anything. As we've mentioned here, one of the main rationalizations of slavery came, of course, from the Bible. But I would submit to you this morning um, that if you understand and you read the Bible creedily, you will understand the Bible speaks of liberation, not slavery. The Bible does not rationalize slavery. It will use slavery because it uses the culture of the day. The Bible slowly, and God's will, slowly changes culture. It doesn't do it all at one time. And sometimes, I think, even in our broader culture today, in our popular culture today, when we look out of the news and we kind of see different things happening in our culture, different cultural movements, one of the criticisms I would bring down upon our culture is to say, but sometimes we want things just instantly. Everyone's got to be perfectly moral instantly. It doesn't work that way. You've got to slowly change culture over time. It takes generations. And the Bible shows us that. So the Bible reveals certain things. It's not prescribing it. It's describing it. It describes certain things that happens in culture um, that, uh, that are less than ideal. But it moves through, and at the end, it shows you what that ideal should be, that ideal of having uh, liberation. Just to use one example. But again, they have to be read again in, in, with, with, along with the creeds, in community, along with the history of the church, and along with the church in, the, in its uh, present form as well. So I think we're doing pretty good on time. So any questions on any of that? And then we'll kind of look at the story of the Bible.
All right. Hearing no questions, I go on. So five acts. What is the story of the Bible? One of the, I think, really important things of being able to understand the Bible is you have to know the overall story, the overall arc of it. It really helps, I think, to then uh, actually read it and be able to pinpoint and put things in different contexts. So the Bible really is in five different acts. The first act, oh, going backwards. The first act is, of course, creation and fall. Here we have the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And if you're with me in my last Sunday school class, you will know exactly that's my interpretation of Scripture. The first 11 chapters of Genesis is very, very different than the rest of the Bible. The first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis is all setting the table. It's creation and fall. So scene one is creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Scene two is fall, primarily Genesis 3. And then Genesis 4 through 11 is the ebb and flow. The ebb and flow. Of, you see the effects of the fall. You also see signs of grace. Ebb and flow, back and forth. Genesis 4 through Genesis 11. Then in Genesis chapter 12, you have Act 2, which is Israel. God comes to Abraham. And that is, in, uh, in Act 2, Israel, Genesis 12, all the way to the end of the Old Testament, all the way to Malachi. Breaking down some of the scenes here. So we have the call of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that entire story, in Genesis 12 to 50. You have scene 2, which is the salvation of Israel, and forming them as God's own. That's Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Le- Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the rest of the Pentateuch. Scene three, you have victory for Israel, and then continual disobedience. So all these cycles of disobedience. And eventual judgment. That eventual judgment, of course, is exile. And so that's Joshua, victory, Joshua, all the way to Second Chronicles. Scene four would be God's grace that is seen even during judgment. So Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are these signs that even during exile, God is still with his people. Scene five would be the wisdom of God. So this is the wisdom, of lit- the wisdom literature there in the Old Testament, which is Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then scene six is the rest of the Old Testament, which is the prophets. The major ones, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the more minor ones, the, the 12 minor ones, all the way to Malachi. So all about Israel in Act 2. Act 3, of course, is Jesus, and he gives us our Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All about Jesus. That's all Act 3. And then Act 4 would be Jesus as he goes, he sends back to his Father, and then he, of course, leaves the church, his body, his hands and his feet. And so we see that in the, uh, in the Bible in Act 4, which is the church, which shows us, uh, gets kicked off in the book of Acts. So scene one would be the Holy Spirit descending upon the church at Pentecost. That's Acts chapter 2. Scene two would be the church staying in Jerusalem as they did. Staying in Jerusalem, what does Jesus say? Right before he ascends back to the Father, he says, I baptize you, now go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, into the uttermost parts of the world. 
Well, they stay in Jerusalem. Not exactly what God asked them to do, or Jesus asked them to do. They stay in Jerusalem in Acts 3 through 8. And then persecution comes, which forces them out of Jerusalem, gets them out of Jerusalem. And what are they doing? Scene number three is they're taking the gospel to the entire world. And that's Acts 9, all the way to the end of the New Testament, except for one book, and the New Testament, all the way to the end of Jude. What you're seeing is you're seeing the church then take the gospel out to the entire known world, or at least as much of the world as they can get their hands on. And the big, the big story there, of course, is Paul wanting to get the gospel to Rome, because Rome is the power player in the world. I got to get the gospel to Rome. And Paul eventually does before he dies. Then we have Act, Act 5. Did I forget Act 5? Looks like I forgot Act 5. Okay, sorry about that. So Act 5 is redemption completed. Well, we see God and humans together. And that is the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation is the, is the, is the uh, best example of a Bible that's very, very mysterious, because Revelation is very mysterious. But the one thing we do know through all the mystery is what it's showing us is God and human beings coming back together in this marriage. Actually, it's a marriage. In this marriage, in this relationship, as we have God and humans reunited God and his creation reunited in salvation. So one of the quotes that come from Revelation that I think gives us the end, really maybe the entire point of the Bible, is this. Is the Bible is a progressive story. It's trying to show this right here. That we will be like him, but we will see him as he is. And in the end, we will see God for who he truly is. So even right now, we look through a glass darkly, but we eventually see God for who he truly is. And that, I think, leads us into a good introduction, perhaps into this week that we're going into right now, into Holy Week, because that is part of what our desire is as we go to all these church services and have these services and do all these rituals, say all these words, 